A um, couple things before we jump into our final teaching in this kind of fall sermon teaching series and theme for us. Um, many of you know that next week is the beginning of Advent. Sunday is the beginning of Advent. And Advent here is always actually kind of a big time as we take reflective time to kind of anticipate and move towards Christmas. And so Advent is actually the beginning of the church calendar, something that we've taught through and walked through as a church community just before COVID. There's seasons throughout this calendar, and Advent is actually the new year in the church calendar. So like next Sunday is like Happy New Year, really, in this thing called the liturgical church calendar. And it is this four-week uh, kind of anticipation of Christmas and Jesus, and we kind of intentionally, not kind of, we do, we journey together as a church community just in anticipation. A lot is missed in the hustle and bustle of Christmas when we just kind of get there and then it's like, oh yeah, we gotta like celebrate baby Jesus, right? Sometimes in our consumer kind of Western culture, we fail at times to kind of slow down and reflect. And so we believe Advent is a great time to kind of hit pause on all that we would be doing as far as teaching in uh, teaching series and themes and just focus on that. With that, uh, last year we did something called the Advent Daily Podcast, which was really, actually I was surprised at like how many people actually engaged that. It was basically a daily podcast with readings and prayers all within it that you could listen to. Uh, this year, what we're going to do, a couple things, just for you, just so you know. One is there is a book at the back of the room. We have, I think, a dozen copies of this book. You, one of you can take this one if you want. It's called Honest Advent by a guy named Scott Erickson. And in here is 25 different readings that uh, we're gonna kind of follow through as a church community. And so we only got a dozen copies like for households. Take one for your household that's there. And then there's a list that you sign your name up and we will order you one this week if your name is on that list. Make sense? So if you, there's some available there, scoop it up. This is what we're gonna read through each day starting on December the 1st, which is just after the first Sunday of Advent. And then the other thing that we're gonna do is we're going to have some social media presence where each day we'll have uh, some readings and some different things uh, kind of in slide or picture form that you can follow along on Facebook and Instagram with us just as we anticipate. So this book is on us. Technically as a church, you just take it and we'll order you one. I know people will always ask like, can we make a donation? I think it costs around 20 bucks. We, in our budget, try and work this. If you wanna make a donation, you can. Just go to the website and if you wanna do that for your book, that's fine as well. But we wanna Make sure everybody kind of walks through and journeys with us through these readings as we kind of reflect together. And then our Sunday gatherings are going to kind of be centered around some of the themes that are in this as we anticipate Christmas. And really excited, um, the next four weeks and including Christmas Eve, we're going to have an art install here of Scott Erickson's work, which is really great. So when you come in, you're gonna see the different themes from some of the things that we're reading in the book. You're gonna see this really beautiful artwork printed all over the place. And we encourage you over the next four weeks just to take time and when you come in, maybe check those out and those will be available on Christmas Eve as well. So I'm pretty pumped, that's cool. So please uh, sign up, if the, books are, well, the books will go. We only got a few, right? So the books will go, but please sign up if you want one and we will get one to you next week when you come to the gathering, they'll be ready to go. We just didn't want Sometimes we, it's easy to like order a bunch and then not every, some of you like are very realistic. I haven't read a book since college. I know some of you are like, why would I take a book if I've never read a book since college? Though we do want to invite you into reading with us. We want to be realistic around that. So it's all there. With that said, here we go. Um, the, kind of the final teaching in this kind of long 
teaching theme called Is It Worth It? Basically, if you're new with us, this fall we've taken some time around just one big question um, that has kind of really led us following, uh, kind of getting back and regathering after COVID and some of the shutdowns, and it's this question, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Now, there's lots to talk about. There's lots on my brain that will go unsaid through this series. There's lots that we could have talked about. We could have talked about gathering dynamics and what it means, actually, really the influence. Like, there's t- we ran out of time, but there's the influence that you have when you gather together with God's family. We didn't unpack that as much, but how important it is that we actually influence each other in our gathering. We could have talked, yeah, about a number of things, but what I want to kind of conclude with today is just this focus on church as family, church as family. Um, It's fascinating, you know, we've talked about the shifts that were happening before COVID kind of in our context in the Western world, and one of the things that I've been saying continually over these last bunch of weeks is that if anything, the post-COVID church in the Western world in a place like Canada is probably more like the first century church than like the generations before us in Canada in our context. And what I mean by that is I feel like if there's any time and moment where we're closer to what the first century church was experiencing in the ancient Mediterranean, it's probably today. Just with the shifts now, listen, we, like I said last week, we don't have Nero over us or Calig- Calig- Caligula, these Roman M, thank you, yes, I, I'll be here all day. Um, these Roman emperors that were obviously using all sorts of force to push Christians to the margin, to persecute them. If you know the story of Rome, uh, Nero, gosh, if you know the story of Nero, he would persecute Christians on the road, crucify them along the road. You, oftentimes in that culture, you would see the persecution externally. It was right there in your face. I know we don't live in that moment, But we do live in a reclaiming moment of what the church should be in the future. And I think with some of the external pressures and some of the subversiveness of where the church lands in its moment, that moment is more like today than ever. Yes, we have our freedoms, but in some respect, we need to kind of look at the punk rock spirit of the early church and how they moved and functioned to look at how we can walk into the future. Now, with that said, open up your Bibles if you have one. You probably have one on your phone. The first Peter chapter two, first Peter chapter two. This is a passage of scripture we have looked at a little bit over the course of the last bunch of years. And I just want to revisit this particular text. The church in our moment is probably closer to the first century than we think. And with that, just before we read, comes the importance, I think, of the Lord's Supper as a primary way of worship, that gathering in homes and meals just as it was the pre-Christendom practice of worship, I believe is important in our moment. I think of what we talked about last week around the church being patient, that the church actually in the first century met in secret. A great scholar named Alan Kreider talks about how the church really wasn't trying to invite the world to their gatherings as much as they were trying to be faithful together as they were under persecution, and yet they didn't have like LED fades, a really nice LED fade this morning, by the way, props to, props to Manny in the back setting up the lights and stuff, but like they didn't have all this stuff, the TVs and the, the media and obviously, but there was this sense that though they met kind of in secret, that God was moving among them to change the known world. The first century community, the pre-Christian community probably 
is an example for us now in our moment. So you got the Lord's Supper, you have this patient way, and then you have family. Listen to what Peter says about the church. If you're a Jewish person reading this, your dashboard is on fire. It is blinking with all sorts of alerts to what God's people had leaned into in the Old Testament. Listen to this, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people. Oh, we've heard this before, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now, brothers and sisters, you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now, brothers and sisters, you have received mercy. So dear friends, I urge you, listen to this language, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of all sorts of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and they may glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now again, any, honestly, even in our own moment, any good Bible reader is thinking about Israel's story, right? We're getting a picture here of actually Peter picking up on very much the Jewish imagery of what was on the people of God. These, this community you know in the Old Testament led by Moses out of uh, uh, slavery 400 years under an oppressive king named Pharaoh through the Red Sea and towards the promised land. And there's this picture that as God's people were called a people in the Old Testament, so too is the church in its moment. In first century Greco-Roman culture and a couple of millennia later here for us. And it's fascinating to me because if you read through the New Testament, there's basically three primary, what I would call, metaphors of the church from the New Testament. And you actually get a picture of them here. That the church community, and Peter believes this, is the new temple. The church community is actually the new temple, the place where God dwells. Now listen, I know Paul talks about us often as our bodies, as individuals being the temple. And certainly there are individual elements, but it's fascinating to me that you get a picture here that actually the place that the presence of God dwells is when these blocks of the temple are together. And this has been kind of the upside downness of the moment that we've had is how, yes, I'm the temple of God, but how can I really be the temple of God if I'm disembodied from the other pieces within the temple? You following me? There's, there's, there's just not just theological challenges around this and about the gathered church through COVID, but just the reality that it's really hard to be what the New Testament would call us to be without being together. And so something unique happens when God's breath comes into the temple. And if you think about the temple in the Old Testament, this is what the whole thing kind of revolved around. Heaven and earth together in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, the, the Hebrew creation account, heaven and earth together, God's first temple was Eden. It was torn apart by sin and injustice and humans going their own way. And over and over, if you read Israel's story, what they're trying to do is they're trying to reclaim that temple. A tent, a movable tent that would kind of travel with them where the presence of God was. And by the way, if you touch the ark, you were a goner. Welcome to Sunday school, right? Can you believe this? Is like, these are our Sunday school stories. This is great. You're like, what are my kids learning right now? I think it's good stuff. I promise it's good. But it, then you get to the, t the actual structure of the temple in the Old Testament where there would be images and sights and sounds all within the temple that would push back to 
Eden. There was this sense that the temple was where the presence of God was, and then the temple, his name, Jesus of Nazareth, comes and dwells among us. He actually, the language is that he tabernacled among us, and the temple comes and gives us his presence, and now we get a picture later on that the church actually embodies this, that God's presence, we are the new temple. So that's the one image. The second image is, is a body that uh, in the Greco-Roman kind of Senate, the Roman Senate, it was known as a body. This would have been language that wasn't like foreign to the people listening or reading Paul's writing. When Paul would call the church a body, it meant something, that Christ was the head of the body and that each and every single person within the church community would play their part within the body. Some of us, the pinky toe, God bless you and me, right, for playing that part. And we all play these like really unique individual pieces. Paul gets to this. It would be weird if we were all the same body part, right? But each part plays a role. I think I've shared the story that even body parts that seem insignificant, um, like my mom was born with six toes, right? So she would kill me if I told you this. And what's fascinating is they had to like fuse, this is disgusting, I know, but they had to fuse two of her toes together and she, as a child, basically had to learn how to walk again. You think about your little pinky toe, right? Does this really matter? Oh, it, it, to the point where you have to learn how to rewalk. And all of us in this room, in the body, play a different role. We are the new body. We're the new temple, the new body. And then, of course, is an image throughout Scripture that I don't think, um, I don't think is a metaphor, that I actually think in its context was legit what the New Testament writers the apostles wanted the church to become. You hear it in the language here that the church is the new Israel, this new community. The picture we actually get is that the church is this new family. That family isn't actually like a metaphor in the scriptures, it is a reality. In his book, Joseph Hellerman, he wrote this really beautiful little book called When Church Was Family. And in it, he talks about how the New Testament church became basically a surrogate family, right? It was like legit, as people came into the community, it became their surrogate family because many, as they would come in and they would give their allegiance to Jesus, would be shunned or they would be excommunicated from their families of the different religions in the empire. And so if you were to come into the church community, you were basically giving up a lot of the rights that you had even with your own family as you would enter the way of Jesus. And so the church wasn't just like metaphorically a family. It literally had to be this place for people where they would come and find care in the, in the Jesus community and in the way of Jesus. It was communal. Now, could we have like a little confession time here. This grinds our cultural moment a bit. And even right now, even in a more sensitive way, it grinds at a lot of what we're seeing even as people respond to a lot of the ways in which they've been hurt by the church, right? So COVID is, again, it's been a fascinating time, but it's interesting that one of the things that I think has been spurred on through COVID, through social media, is people expressing their disappointment and their hurt with the church. And we've seen this through um, uh, social media accounts, all sorts of stuff, or people telling their stories of being uh, abused or wounded deeply by the church. 
And for that, I actually think that's, guys, in some ways, this is a very good thing that people are being able to have a voice and to reconcile with some of their experiences and certainly with people who have uh, experienced abuse at the hands of the church. We have, guys, we have a lot to own up for as the church moving forward and we have a, a lot to reflect on and I think there needs to be openness and so there's part of me that is actually, I'm actually thankful that there's a voice, especially for abuse victims and who have experienced maybe toxic things within the church. I think about this all the time. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a pastor's home. Um, I see this and I reflect on it a lot. And I feel sometimes, I do feel the tension at times to call the church to become family when there's a lot of people that have had a lot of difficult experiences. And I'm in a world right now in, in therapy and, and walking with people where walking with abuse victims and see what that, ha- what the, what that does to individuals and just, just the, the havoc that can come on a life. And so I stand in the tension a bit, and I do, on, and maybe I'm biased and maybe my head is in the clouds. I think Praxis has been a fairly healthy place and a healthy community, and I'm thankful for the community that we have here. But I just think we need to talk about that a little bit, that we live in this, this moment where some of you maybe have had certain experiences and you hear the call to be family and you're like, the church is one jacked up family. And to that I would kind of say, yeah, kind of, we are in that sense of people who are broken and coming together. One of the questions we have to wrestle through is how do we move into our future creating healthy spaces and yet also kind of dealing with our past. And honestly, I get up here this morning and I don't even have the full answer to all of that. I think it takes time and energy for us to deal um, and think and reflect and think about the way sometimes people have been treated or the experiences that they've had. So I get that this idea of family, even now in our moment in the church, kind of grinds, I get that. And I just wanna say, if you have come into this community or you've had these types of experiences, we want to walk with you and stand with you and do everything that we can. So there's that kind of thing that grinds at our moment when we talk about church's family. The other thing is just the fact that some of us are just like introverted. Anybody with me? You just like books with dead, you like reading books with dead people at the end of the day. You like a nice closed room. Maybe somebody, one of the children come and knock on the door every once in a while and you tell them to go away because you're deep in it or whatever. You know, I'm, I just think about my own life and my own way that I'm, I love people, right? But as an introvert, um, I just know that we live in a culture where everything is designed for me right now as an individual. I can work from home, we have all these things. I think about just even now that I go to the grocery store, I get to wear a mask and I get to put my headphones in. It is like an introvert's dream. Is anybody with me? You see somebody and just like, they don't even know it's you because you got the mask and the headphones in. You don't make eye contact, you just go home. It's just, there's a few tips for you. I'm just joking. I would never do that to you if I saw you in the grocery store. But there's just this, With technology, the shaping of our world, there's lots going on that push us to autonomy. Charles Taylor, the great philosopher, would say that we live in this age of authenticity where we're kind of our own authority and with that comes us being the authority of our lives. So we live in the tension that many people have experienced and have been wounded by the church and we call the church to be family. And then we get into this world, this new shaped world where I have every ounce of information in my pocket, in my iPhone, 
and I kind of can live as this uh, autonomous person, right? Church is who I am. It's not something I go to, and so on and so forth. What's fascinating is Hellman in his book, when he looks at the first century and what was unfolding, he talks about a few really pivotal, important things. And one of the things he points to is that actually the church was a gathered identity. So when they used this language around like, I am the church, it was around their identity as a gathered people. And Hellman makes three points I just want to remind us about. In all the, the kind of the giving, pre, uh, kind of giving a, uh, a warning about kind of how we're feeling in our moment, in our time, I get it. We want to be sensitive to all of that. But this is what he says about the first century. He says this, number one, in the New Testament world, the group actually took priority over the individual. So not just in the church, but actually in Greco-Roman society and culture. And some of you come actually from cultures like this. Um, maybe you've immigrated to Canada and come to Canada, and there is a cultural impulse where family was of value, and the group actually made decisions together that pr pretty much took priority over an individual's uh, decision within that. And that is very first century. That's what you would have experienced in the Greco-Roman world. The group would have taken priority over uh, the individual. Now, some of you are like, do you know my mother-in-law? Or do you know my father-in-law? That's for another series, another time. Okay. Number two. He says that in the New Testament, a person's most important group that they were a part of was their blood family. And so again, it ran deep. That blood ran deep within this culture to the point where your autonomy was basically lost at the, at the hand of the greater family that you were a part of. And then three, he talks about this. He says this, in the New Testament world, it's interesting, the closest family bond was not actually the bond of marriage, it was the bond between siblings. And so when the New Testament writers would talk and use language like brothers and sisters and talk about us as God's family, it ran deep. Like people would have known because of the cultural impulse in that culture, when it talks about us being brothers and sisters, that would have been alive in people's minds and hearts as they pick this up, right? We pick up the New Testament, we have some chasm because our greatest goal in Western culture, and let's be honest, I'm, I'm swimming in this as well, is you turn 18 and you move out and you go to college. Come on, somebody with me? Woo! And then you maybe get married and now it's like more and more, it's you know, closer to your late 20s, 30s, whatever that is, depending on whether you're in the church or the culture, those numbers change. And we just look to buy our first place and kind of get away and build our own lives and not all of that is bad, but it's just a different context. And then you get Paul writing about this, this church being a family, and it would, have, it would have drawn things out of people. Hellman says this. He says, The Christian communities established by Peter, Paul, and others in the Roman Empire were strong groups, surrogate family units, in which the good of the group took priority over the desires and aspirations of individual matters. The good of the group took priority over Drew going through the aisles in the grocery store with his mask and his iPod or his earpods in, right? That the group took priority. And so what we have right now, kind of in our moment uh, in the Western church, is a lot of people that say things like this. I hear it all the time. And it's wonderful. It's a great posture, honestly. People will say, I want to grow. 
This has been 10 years of people saying, guys, I just want to grow spiritually. I want to grow in the way of Jesus. And for that, I am all for that. But oftentimes, I think what happens is we say a statement like that in our very transient, mobile, very like kind of fast food, fast paced. I get information whenever I want. I can walk. Remember when you had to walk through the aisles of Blockbuster? Do you remember? I was thinking about this this week. And now you just sit. <laughs> Blockbuster, yes. And then you just sit down now and everything is at our fingertips. And when it comes to our spirituality, I think we've kind of conditioned ourselves that that's going to be the way. And so I hear people say, I want to grow. And you call people into like the long road of following Jesus. And that isn't always comfortable. Hellman says this, listen to this. This, has, this quote has changed me, especially oftentimes in my po- life posture. He says this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. This is what he says. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. And then he says this, people who stay also grow. People who stay grow. Now, this is not a plea. You know this. This is not a plea to keep anybody in a church. And I actually think, and this is for another time, there are times when people should maybe change churches because of, obviously, circumstances and different things. That is not what we're saying. I know you could hear that and go, oh my goodness, is this like the communist up front trying to keep everybody under his two thumbs? If you know me, you know it's actually absolutely the opposite. I think a healthy, flourishing church is uh, just like God who is love is inviting, not putting his thumb over people or putting our thumb over people. But I will say, in all of our kind of formulas of spiritual growth, I think this could be the thing that's often missing. It's just longevity. Is walking in the way of Jesus and being a part of something and being a part of a family. Because what we find actually in the Bible, if you read it, it's fascinating to me, as we've talked a lot about worship over the last few weeks too, is that you find a God who seems at least as concerned with his group, right, the community, so me in relationship, you in relationship with your brothers and sisters, than he is in having a relationship with me as an individual, right, me and my relationship with God. What we've done is put all the emph- emphasis, just go to the Christian bookstore, which is it's wonderful, but like you just go and look at like the books and the, the, the things that like kind of are popular and it's all about what? Me and my relationship with God, but yet you have this New Testament thing over and over drawing us into actually a true form of worship being the w- kind of worship where we are together. And I'm not saying we don't cultivate our individual relationship with God. We are all for that. But what is often diminished at the expense of that is a worshiping community that's growing together. Hellman says this, God's intention is not to become the feel-good father of a myriad of isolated individuals who appropriate the Christian faith as yet another avenue towards personal enlightenment. And I couldn't agree more. That it's about being part of a community and how do we do this amongst church hurt? 
honestly, I stand here and all I know is we can just, just be vulnerable and look to the future and walking forward. There are, there are tensions there. I get it. How do we do it in a world where we don't need, it feels like we don't need as much each other as much anymore because of the information and the type of technology we have? All I know is that God is calling us to be a family. And the church of the future, I, I just think, it like, I think of it like this. The church of the future is family. And it has to be. Because I think like the 90s and the 2000s a bit, even when we started a City View back, it was kind of like, even though we wouldn't say it, it was kind of like a competition. I'm just going to tell you this. It's like one church competing about how they could do like a Sunday morning experience better than another. Like how can we just like be better and do this? And the beautiful thing with COVID is COVID's kind of destroyed that in many, it's still out there, but in many ways it's destroyed that. And I actually think that's a really good thing. And the good thing about this season is that the future of the church, I think, is family, is being these brothers and sisters together. So I'll just say this, and I've said this before. I actually think that the deepest form of worship, deep, and man, this morning was so good. You guys did so amazing. And just the song selection, we're gonna sing that new song at the end because there was just something powerful about singing these words together. But I've actually come to the conclusion that more than just, and I love Hillsong and Bethel songs and worshiping Jesus, I love that. But more than just that kind of type of worship, I really do believe that the deepest form of worship in, in the New Testament is a relentless commitment to God's family. It's a relentless commitment towards each other. And I'm, as you know, I am actually becoming very weary these days to exclusively call our music time on Sunday worship. That's why we call it more music, because everything I believe we're doing here, the teaching, coming to the tables, in a few minutes you'll take a book or say hi to somebody and spend time with each other, all of it is worship together. And I also grow, and not in this community as much, but just on more of a, a greater level, I grow a little tired sometimes when we want worship to be vertically, right, but want nothing to do with our brothers and sisters horizontally. And I think if Jesus was in the room, he would kind of push at that a little bit. How deep can we go in worship? You often hear this. I heard a song, it came out, and um, I heard a song. It was a few, years ago, a few months ago. I was running, and I was listening on my iPod, and the worship leader, who's a wonderful person, said, it's going to cost you something. Like, as we sing the song, he was calling on the crowd, it's going to cost you something. And I thought, you know, true worship, it really is going to cost you something. And it's not just singing songs. It's actually laying our lives down for our brothers and sisters. You with me? You hanging in there? Church is family. So with this said, we're really after two things here. This is not new to you that have been around for a while, but I know it's just such a weird time kind of coming back. One is that life posture in community is far greater than tasks. I, just, I feel like it's important to say this. Life posture and community together will always precede and always be way more important than tasks. And what I mean by that is there are tasks. Look around. There's pipe and drape hung up. There's a wicked fade on the back wall of LED lights. Come to practice church. Practice church. Anybody do this in high school? That was really, do you guys still do this? Anyways, I don't know. Bringing it back. I went to Clark Road, so you need to pray for me. Like, I survived, and I'm here, and pulling it up. But, um... There, there, are, there are tasks here, right? But we have very much moved to a place in space like Kev this morning, these, all these guys just setting up and we need, well, there's parts of that we need. Um, but more than anything, we've really turned towards that is not important compared to people and life together. So the ball will be dropped sometimes and you know, sometimes things may be uncomfortable but it's all about our life posture together. 
And the other thing we just continue to say is that church as a family is way greater than church as an event, right? Church is family. There are things that we do where we sit in rows, but it is way better than church as an event. Um, to close, I'll, I'll just say this. I think some of you probably a few years ago saw on Netflix this documentary on the Fire Festival. Anybody watch this? Basically, it was these music moguls that um, were famous and tech entrepreneurs and some famous music people who attempted to throw a music festival in the Bahamas for rich kids and social media influencers. And I don't, spoiler, it's been out for a few years, so it is what it is. It goes tragically wrong. They promise all this stuff and they have no infrastructure or means to make it happen. And as I'm honest, I don't have too much anxiety, but watching this just on the edge of my seat, watching the train wreck that was the fire festival and just the mechanism, you can go and watch it. And honestly, my posture when watching this was of course just thinking through the lens of the church. Um, I just got thinking, you know, there's a number of things here for the church. One is that it is very easy when church is an event to oversell things, right? You can just like oversell things that aren't real. And another is just to kind of think that the event is the answer. And so if you know, if you've watched the story, the, the thing, the thing that takes down this Kind of, kind of the final straw of taking down the fire festival is some people actually get on the Bahama Island and they're like in NATO tents, I think, like army tents and stuff. They were pr promised these villas and it was like just everything falling apart. And then somebody had access to be able to tweet and they tweeted a picture in like a, a container of like this gnarly cheese sandwich was the thing that took it down. There's supposed to be gourmet food and everything. It was just fascinating how it all kind of imploded. Now what was interesting is after I was listening to a number of podcasts with people who were involved with the fire Festival and some of them like got out obviously during the whole thing. And what fascinated me about hearing some of these music moguls who were trying to keep this thing going is they began to talk about how draining events are. Like to try and pull off these events, it's just some of you know you're in events. It's like so hard to pull this off in the concert, in the concert industry with millions of dollars behind it. And I just got thinking as I'm listening to this, Oftentimes we've come from a posture where we think that we can make church a weekly event without it becoming like draining and destroying people. And what we are living in the wake of is through a lot of people's, again, some of the hurt they've experienced, this is exactly that. We're living in the wake of that. If the guys with millions of dollars behind them find it draining, just think how taxing and how burdensome the church would become if it was just a weekly event, right? This is why, brothers and sisters, church as family is the way forward. And amongst all that we've talked about over these number of weeks, and thanks for being patient, I just think it, we need to kind of be reminded that we are this patient community, like fine wine fermenting here in the city together. And we are this patient community that is called to be a family. We don't have it all sorted out. We're not perfect. But certainly this is the type of community when Paul says, brothers and sisters, you're called together. This is the type of community we want to be. It takes time and it takes growing in that. But as we talk about the future, this is it. This is the sweet spot. I'm, I'm almost sure of it, that this is the way forward.
As the church was a family in the pre-Christian world, is that not the post-Christian apologetic for the world? This community of people that just love each other, walk with each other. So with that said, a lot of words over the last eight or nine or whatever weeks, and thanks for hanging in there. But is church worth it? I'm a, I'm a little biased. Maybe, maybe, honestly, not for some of us, maybe not churches we have experienced it. And I don't mean that as like a negative, you know, towards maybe things you've experienced. But I think the things that we've talked about, is church worth it? It absolutely is. The gathered people of God is worth it.